into Jordan. Here's Michael at the foul line. A shot on Elo. Good! The Bulls win! Playoffs? We'll talk about playoffs? You kidding me? I'm supposed to be the franchise player, and we're in here talking about practice. Hello? You play to win the game. They're down to the 20. All the band is out on the field. He's going to go into the end zone. I don't believe what I just saw. One of the all-time shockers. Hi, everyone. I'm Mitch Goldich, and welcome to episode 11 of my very creatively named Mitch Goldich podcast. I have a guest today that I'm really excited about, someone whose work I've enjoyed for years. He's a writer and podcaster for The Ringer, covering mostly baseball, but also a bunch of other topics. And before that, he was at Grantland and Baseball Prospectus. He co-wrote a book this year. He is Ben Lindbergh. Uh, before we get to Ben in just a minute, I just want to say thanks to everyone who tuned in. However you found me, uh, this podcast is in iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and Google Play Music. If you're here for the first time, you can go back and listen to some other baseball-centric episodes with some baseball people. I spoke to Jason Stark all about his career and how he does his job at ESPN. I have an episode with Eric Malinowski. It's episode one, actually, so don't judge me if it sounds a little rough. But we talked all about covering the World Series and his kind of famous article for Deadspin about the Simpsons and Mr. Burns' team of MLB players. So feel free to go back and listen, subscribe, rate, review, all that good stuff. But my guest is Ben Lindbergh, and he's been patiently sitting through this info. So hi, Ben. How's it going? <laughs> hi. Going well. Thank you. Good. I'm always uh, – I go back and forth on if I should, like, pre-tape the intros or just make the guests sit there, and then I always end up just making them sit there. I don't know. How do you yes. – is that something you, you have the same battle, I guess, or uh, internal yeah. conflict? Yeah. I know that dilemma also. I, uh, I've generally gone to pre-recording or just saying hello and then making an actual intro later, but there's no perfect way to do that. Yeah. Well, I figured I'd waste your time with a couple of minutes and make you sit through. So thanks for uh, thanks <laughs> no for being problem. a good sport. <laughs> All right. Um, so you are you're technically a baseball writer and obviously you've written a lot about baseball. But uh, one thing that I think is interesting about your work is that you've also written plenty about movies and TV and video games, at least one piece on the election, if not more. So I'm sort of curious, how does that work? Is uh, The Ringer just open to letting you pitch on anything, or do they sort of know those are your hobbies and things that you're going to be able to write well about, even if they're not baseball? Yeah, I've been working with my current editor, Mallory Rubin, since I joined The Ringer and also when I was at Grantland. And so we have a really good relationship, and that's part of the reason I wanted to go to The Ringer, was that I knew I would be working with Mal again, and that... It just in general, the editorial staff is very open to writers kind of pursuing their interests, whatever those interests are. So if you're someone who came to the site because of one specific beat, that doesn't mean you were limited to it. So it started really when I was at Grantland and I had only really written about baseball before going to Grantland because I had been at a exclusively baseball site, but they were very open to my writing about other things. And I knew that would continue to be the case at the ringer. So really I have one editor who's kind of my contact for everything. And if I want to pitch a baseball piece, then she can just sign off on it. Or if I want to do some culture thing or some current affairs thing, then maybe she will interface with some other editors who run those verticals. But for the most part, it's been a very smooth and seamless process, and it's been great to get to do that because there aren't that many sites, I don't think, that would be willing to give anyone a chance to write about anything. So I really appreciate that. Mm -hmm. So how different is your life during the off season? Do you, do you think uh, – because I feel like a lot of 
baseball writers would have less to write about in the offseason. Obviously, you cover, you know, the hot stove and all that good stuff, and there are stories to do, but do you sort of find yourself either writing less or actively seeking out more non-baseball things for you to write about because there's less actual baseball to talk about? Yeah, definitely that's the case now. I haven't really written about baseball in a few weeks other than a couple winter meetings trade reactions that we just had to do. I've kind of had time to do other things, you know, read a bunch about Star Wars for Rogue One's release or we started a video game podcast, so I've been doing more video game stuff. So that's definitely the solution for me now when I was doing baseball full time. It didn't change for me all that much, except that I guess it got a little bit harder. I just, you know, when I was at Baseball Prospectus, I was still writing about baseball year round. And so when there was no actual baseball, that was harder in some ways. Or, you know, it was hard to find topics that weren't just transaction analyses. So I am in awe of people who, you know, someone like Jeff Sullivan, for instance, at Fangraphs, who turns out a a couple posts per day, seemingly, no matter what time of year it is, no matter what is going on or not going on in baseball, you have to be really creative at those times of years. And, you know, when I used to do the Baseball Prospectus podcast, Effectively Wild, every weekday year round, that was a challenge because there were days when there just was no baseball to talk about. And so we had to really stretch a bit or get a guest on who might have something to say because we were just dry. So it can be tough, but it's something that there is an appetite for. I think baseball fans are still baseball fans over the winter. And if anything, when there are no games going on, they're looking even harder for something to scratch that itch. Yeah, they're not just sitting out, uh, staring out the window waiting for spring like the old No, they are not. Yeah. (laughs) All right, I'm glad you uh, brought up your other podcast and the video game one in particular. Uh, Achievement Oriented is what it's called, right? And uh-huh, that's, that's right. And that's uh, Through the Ringer. So that one, I, I have questions because I'm a regular listener of your other two, but that one I have not listened to. But, uh-huh. uh, you know, it makes sense. You have Effectively Wild with Sam Miller and it makes sense you want to keep that going. It makes sense you join the Ringer and they want you to be on the MLB show with Michael Bauman. But the video game one uh surprised me when I saw it for the first time. How did that come about? Is that something that you've wanted to do for a while? And, and what made you want to take that on on top of everything else that you have gone on? Yeah, it is something that I wanted to do for a while. And Jason Concepcion, my co-host, who was a, a colleague of mine at The Ringer and also at Grantland, we've been talking about it for a while. We just sort of have these nerdy interests that we wanted an outlet for. And When neither of us really had a site after Grantland died, we did some SoundCloud podcasts. We just put them up there and not that many people listened, but it was a way for us to talk about things that we didn't have a place to talk about. And so we sort of had to sell it because video games was not really a core part of Grantland's coverage and is not really a core part of the Ringer's coverage. And we had to persuade people that there would be an audience. But again, they are very willing to let writers do things that interest them. And this was something that interested us. I I basically haven't changed all that much since I was, I don't know, 10 years old. I (laughs) just still play video games. I still watch baseball. And now I get to do those for jobs, which is pretty cool. So I have this experience producing podcasts that I got through Effectively Wild and just having to figure out how to do that because no one else was going to do it. And this was a, another interest and just, you know, another way to sort of establish myself as someone who can do more than one thing and reach a, an audience that my baseball stuff wouldn't. And the reception to it has been really great so far. So I'm very happy that we're getting to do it. 
All right, that was my next question, actually. How much time do you actually spend playing video games, and how does that <laughs> compare to when you really were 10 years old? Yeah, I mean, that's been a tough thing, actually, since we started really covering video games in this podcast and doing it a little bit more for the site. I mean, video games are not short, and you want to finish them in order to have an informed opinion about them. And so it is kind of hard to find time, not that it's such a hardship to find time for essentially a recreational activity, but when you're trying to balance everything else, that's the thing. It's it's really hard to be like uh, the go-to person for more than one beat at the same time. You know, when you're when you're the baseball person, you can devote all your time to baseball and you can read about baseball constantly and you can watch baseball constantly and you can kind of be on top of that game. And then when you try to branch out and do multiple things, you have to try to not be stretched too thin and have your work in one area suffer because you're trying to do multiple areas. So it can be tough. There have definitely been some times when, you know, I have this podcast coming up and I have to play these two games before we record the podcast. And there are only so many hours before that time. And the game takes this many hours. And wow, that doesn't leave many hours after that. So again, not that anyone is crying say, over my plight sounds, of having to play. Sounds video like a games, tough but... <laughs> life you've carved out for yourself over there. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, it's not tough. These are, are pleasurable hours for the most part, but at the same time, they are hours that you have to find time for somehow. And that comes at the expense of something. So it's tough. You can't really fake playing video games, you know, in a sense, like the more I covered baseball, almost the less I watched, or at least the less, the less often that I would sit down and watch a full baseball game from start to finish, because there are too many baseball games and they take too long. If you're trying to cover all of baseball and, and be aware of what's going on, you kind of have to cut corners somehow. And you have to maybe watch highlight shows or read box scores or read recaps or do something so you can stay on top of it without actually devoting all the time it would take to seeing all of it. But with video games, it's harder to do that because you actually do have to play the games. You can't really read about them and get the same experience that maybe you can with baseball where, you know, we know what a baseball game looks like and we know what it what it is to experience a baseball game. And so you can kind of look up the specific events that happened in any one game and have a pretty good feel for what that game was like. But that doesn't work as well So for video games. So it can be tough to, to find the time. But again, these are all things that I'm interested in and want to do, which makes it a lot easier. Yeah, so and it, so it sounds like you are playing more than you would otherwise because of the podcast. That was when you yes. when you yes. launched it, you said, "Okay, I'm also going to have to carve out." It's not like you for the last however many years have been just like playing video games all day. <laughs> no, I have not. And and I've I've kept up with it, you know, as a hobby, but when you're covering it, when you have to speak authoritatively about one or two topics per week, then yes, you have to make sure that you're spending time doing that whereas before, if I wasn't writing something about it or I wasn't talking about it, you know, I could go a week or two here or there without ever actually playing anything. Now that's harder to do. Yeah. All right. Your uh, answers have led into like the exact thing that I wanted to talk about because <laughs> you you're one of those people that uh, it's just like it's not fair. Like I and I have a lot of uh, coworkers at SI who are like this. 
where it's like, oh, did you see the game last night? Yep. And then it's like, also, they're caught up on every TV show that, like, I have so many shows that I'll just never see. And there are people who have, like, seen all of Westworld and Stranger Things, and they've listened to three new albums. And, like, I just don't, <laughs> I don't know where they find the time. And, yeah. and that's, so it's, uh, it's, I guess it's nice to hear that you feel <laughs> stretched thin sometimes. But, uh, I mean, how are you able, because, am I right? You, it seems like, I feel like every time a TV show pops up, you're, like, very caught up on things like that. How do you find time for all of that kind of stuff and bounce? Are you just, like, not, I don't want to call it work if it's, like, watching TV, but is, is that okay. kind of, do you feel, do you take TV the same way where you're, like, thinking about it as a thing that you have to keep up with and get through partly for, you know, your writing and, and podcasting, or are you just caught up on all this stuff anyway because that's just the kind of person you are and, and the way you fill your time? Yeah, I mean, it's partly something I'd probably be doing anyway. But yeah, I guess the downside of sort of having the freedom to do almost anything at The Ringer is that I kind of always feel like, well, this could be a, an article or, you know, this could be something that I end up doing. And so, yes, there there is kind of a, a pressure, you know, if this is the show that everyone's talking about now, you know, like Westworld, for instance, was a show that I enjoyed, you know, I, I wasn't as into it as some people were. I wasn't like on Reddit, you know, doing crazy theories or anything. I probably, if left to my own devices, might have just kind of, you know, caught up at my leisure. I wasn't necessarily watching every episode the second it aired. But because Westworld became a kind of a, a source of coverage for The Ringer and we were doing, you know, group posts every week and people were doing individual posts and People were asking me if I could write about an episode, if, you know, other people were occupied, that kind of thing. Then I did feel like, OK, I, I kind of have to watch this now, or at least it would be advantageous to watch this. So, yeah, I mean, definitely there is that kind of constant awareness of, you know, this is the thing that is popular now or, you know, this is what people want to read about and this is what the editors want people to write about. And so if I also enjoy it, then maybe I can find time to do it. And then hopefully it doesn't come at the expense of something else important. So, I, uh, yeah, I'm, I mean, there are definitely areas of culture where I am not at all plugged in and I don't know anything that's going on. And so I'm I'm not like omnivorous when it comes to content, but there are certain areas, you know, if it's like sci-fi or some sort of nerdy show or video game or baseball, you know, they're kind of these core areas where I am very into it and I will look for every opportunity to to experience it and to be caught up so that if I am called upon to do something for the site, I can do that. And I've I've ended up, I think, working more for The Ringer than we discussed my working when I started, you know, when we kind of planned out, OK, you're going to write roughly this much and you're going to do roughly this many podcasts. I think I've definitely gone over that just because I keep kind of looking for new things to branch into. And it, I, partly it's an ego thing. Like, I think there's part of me that just doesn't want to be. A baseball writer or, you know, a, a writer about any one specific thing. Like I, I want to be able to tell myself that I am interesting enough to talk about more than one topic, I guess. And that's that's part of it. And it's also that I don't know, I just want to make myself more valuable, I suppose. And if I'm only doing one thing, then I'm I'm more dispensable, I guess, than if I were doing more things. So that's all part of it. Yeah. Am I right? It feels like uh, maybe you don't follow other sports. I mean, I know you don't follow them yeah, as much right. as baseball. Like, is that where you you save your time compared to somebody that like is... me? It's like that I spend 
like trying to be an expert on baseball and football and being able to just yes. be like, nope, forget about football probably saves you hours and hours a week. <laughs> yeah, that is a big time saver for me. And I'm I'm so impressed by people who can just, you know, like name everyone on every team in every sport. And there are so many people like that who just, you know, are are experts or at least are very casually familiar with every sport that's going on at once. And that is not at all me. For me, I, I kind of I guess that is how I find the time is. I pay close attention to baseball and then everything else, you know, I'm just uh, incidentally aware of the big stories, but I devote zero time to watching or following them. So that is probably an area where I make up a bunch of time. And so you were just ahead of the curve tuning out the NFL. It's <laughs> like that's what everyone's starting to get to that point eventually. Right. Yeah. So, um, so let's talk about the baseball stuff because I'm also interested. I had when I had Jason Stark on, he was really interesting to talk to about his whole system and the notes that he takes and looking at box scores and following all 30 teams. So I'd also be curious just to hear your uh, your method or process. Um, so when you just uh, you know, maybe I'll just leave this open ended. But basically, I mean, do you have like you must have go to sites or writers or things like if you wake up in the morning during the season, like go to places to go check out and see what else is going on that you might not have uh, that you might not have watched live or an article you want to read. So what are some of your, I guess, go to sources and, and kind of just if you were to sum up how you follow baseball, um, you know, what are kind of the, the biggest pieces and things that you make sure you do every day? Yeah, I mean, I definitely read all the analytically oriented sites every day, Baseball Prospectus and Fangraphs and the Hardball Times. I will go see what's there, and often there are evergreen research pieces there, but usually there's some sort of response to whatever the current news is. And so that helps me stay up on things and also just be educated about the analysis that's going on and the research that's being done. And for more sort of newsy stuff, I'll I'll look at sites like Hardball Talk, for instance, the NBC Sports blog that Craig Calcaterra runs, just because if there is news, there will be a post about it there, basically. And whatever people are talking about on Twitter or whatever the news story of the day is, Craig or, or someone on his staff will post about it. And that will just help me ensure that I'm not missing something huge or, you know, I'll go to MLB trade rumors, for instance, and I'm I'm not really all that interested in the rumors themselves. But whatever the, the big story is will generally be there. So that's kind of how I stay up on current events. And as for actually watching baseball, I, I watch MLB Network's Quick Pitch a lot, which is just kind of a, a highlight show. It's just a a quick condensed version of every game, which sort of lets me see the important events. And there's some condensed game videos online at MLB.com too. So that's kind of the way I tend to consume baseball. Not that I never watch actual baseball games, but that is just a, an efficient way to sort of see what's happening without having to devote three plus hours to any specific game. So I would say that's generally the strategy and you know, I find that having a podcast actually kind of helps me stay up on the news because listeners will email us questions about whatever the the current event is. And so that will kind of give me a sense of what people are interested in. And effectively, Wild has a, a Facebook group with several thousand people in there and they're all hardcore baseball fans. And so whatever they are posting about is kind of the the pulse of the baseball community. So those are all ways I think that I managed to keep up on what's going on, even though there is always so much going on. 
Yeah, and yet, I, I, I was just saying, I can vouch for yeah. the Facebook group. The notifications just come in all day. Yeah, <laughs> you yeah, have, to, have to turn them really. off, or else, or else you just, <laughs> your phone blows up the whole day. Yeah, I mean, there are people all over the world in that Facebook group, so pretty much every time zone, and there's always someone talking about something, which is really cool. And yeah, I mean, during the season, I always feel like I'm ill-informed, basically. Like I always feel like I should be watching more. There's something I'm missing, you know, or I'll, I'll just like look at statistical leaderboards sometimes just because you can have blind spots, you know, someone's having a really good season and you don't even realize it. And so that's helpful too. But I, I feel much more on top of things during the winter when, you know, the only really news that's happening is signings and, and trades. Whereas during the season, I know that I could be watching more baseball. I, I must be missing something important. So that's kind of always in the back of my mind. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned the leaderboards. How much time do you spend just kind of poking around through stats? And I know you're somebody who obviously is interested in advanced stats and analytics. So and, and now there's just so much that we have out there with StatCast and PitchFX and all the all the crazy stuff. How much time do you spend just kind of digging through data as opposed to maybe reading articles or, you know, narratives? How much time is just like maybe I'll find something interesting or is it really like if you've got a player or a team you want to write about, then you go and search for their stats and, and trends and things that you can find. Yeah, I'd say the ideas usually don't come from the leaderboards, although they have on occasion, but usually I'll get an idea from something else and then, then look at the stats. And I am not a skilled statistician. I am an English major and you know, I took a couple probability classes in college, but I mean, that's basically the extent of my expertise. I've dabbled in coding a little bit, but I'm far from accomplished in anything like SQL or R. So a lot of my work is made possible by other people who help me out, whether it's Rob McEwen, who is Baseball Prospectus's secret weapon. He's the guy who kind of fulfills all the stat requests that authors make. And so you can send Rob some crazy request that there's really no way to find just by looking online, even with all the wealth of information that's out there. And he will crunch the numbers and he will send you what you want most of the time. And that's been a really valuable resource. And that's, I mean, that's kind of the thing. Like when, when you are looking at sites like BP or Fangrass and you're wondering, well, how did he do this research or how did you do this research? I mean, Often it is kind of one of the benefits of working at those sites is that there's a a support staff there that can help you with those things and make you look smart. So a lot of the statistical articles I do would not be possible if I were left to my own devices. And so that's uh, that's a big part of it is that there's this sabermetric community where people are willing to devote their time, whether it's just because they like helping you or because they like seeing their name in print or whatever it is, they will do things for you that you could not do on your own. And it's just a a really great community. So that's a, a big part of it. I don't spend all that much time really doing serious analysis beyond, you know, Excel formulas, but I end up with the the fruits of a lot of that labor one way or another, which is nice. And BP doesn't mind because they have so many writers there, but it's it's not a big deal that if Rob is spending his time helping you on a piece for, you know, when you were at 
Grantland and ESPN are now at the ringer that, you know, that's time he could spend researching something for a BP writer, but you guys just have that kind of relationship. Like, does he need to get like, I don't, I don't know, clearance to like work on it, but is that a thing? Has that ever, do you ever get pushback if he's like busy with other stuff or other people at BP, or that's just kind of a thing where they're happy to help you. Obviously you're, you know, formerly of BP and, and you know, you writing good stuff continues to make them look good. Um, but is that the kind of thing where they're just fine with it and, and doing some research for you, even though you're not writing for them anymore? Yeah, well, because I'm still doing the podcast for BP, I still sort of am part of the site in a way. And so that, I think, is part of the justification for it. But I'm always conscious of not trying to take up too much of his time. And there are definitely parts of the year where, you know, if he's kind of in crunch time with the annual, the book that comes out every spring, or he's working on Pakoda projections or whatever it is, he will not have time to do stat requests. And so the farther in advance I can get those things to him or anyone else is is much better if it doesn't have to be a, a quick turnaround. So there are definitely times it's not, you know, at all hours of the day I can snap my fingers and get exactly the information I want. But because I'm still sort of affiliated with BP in a way and because I think there's some value to getting BP's name out there and links to BP in sites with larger more mainstream audiences, you know, a site like BP that is subscription based and historically has been behind the paywall a lot. There is value to that word of mouth and kind of saying, hey, this site exists and does worthwhile work, which is a always a challenge, you know, having been at BP to kind of strike that balance between giving people who pay for the site something to justify their their payment, but also to reach an audience that is not already paying for the site and to say, hey, there's stuff here that you should pay for. So that was always a challenge. And and I think that being at somewhere like Grantland or The Ringer that is not that hardcore baseball analysis audience gives BP a, a way to reach those people it, it might not other, otherwise reach. All right. Final thing about your actual uh, baseball coverage process. But when do you actually write? Because one thing that I've noticed about myself is that I'm terrible at writing while there's an actual game on and like it's uh-huh. the people who uh watch a game and then turn in a story on deadline 10 minutes after the <laughs> game and they always amaze me because i yeah i just know that's not when i'm watching i'm usually like watching on one screen and then tweet deck on the other to see what people are saying about it yeah. um but are you and i know you're watching uh mlb quick pitch and things more than a, a typical game but are you writing as these games if you've got like a column coming out on a wednesday are you finding time during the day Tuesday or Tuesday night or, you know, when uh, when obviously different pieces are different and might take longer to put together. But when yeah. is your sort of go to time to actually get some writing done? Yeah, I find it very difficult to write during games. Also, I don't have to do that very often and I'm thankful for that. But the times when I do, you know, if it's the playoffs or I'm covering the World Series or something and I have to do essentially a game story. That's a challenge, you know, because that is not what I do for most of the year. And I write, you know, to the extent that I can, I, I try to write in solitude, basically. I'm I'm very bad at writing with things going on in the background. Like, I, I can't even listen to most music when I'm writing. I certainly can't have the TV on or anything. I, I just, I need to be kind of by myself in the quiet. And so... When I do have to write in a press box on deadline, you know, I I find a way, but it's not the most comfortable experience and I never really feel like I do my best work in those circumstances. But 
Yeah, I I tend to be nocturnal, and I think that is partially just the way I'm wired. Like at parts of my life when I was in school or you know wasn't working or whatever, I just sort of naturally gravitated toward that sort of stay up really late schedule. So I think that might just be something innate, but it's also a product of having covered baseball for a while. You know, the games are at night. The things that you're reacting to are generally at night. You have to update the stats after the game, that sort of thing. And so you tend to just kind of slip later and later. And because I like to write in solitude, that's easier to do at night, too. So I do tend to sort of stay up uh, all night often and then you can get into a really bad cycle where, you know, if you have to be up during the day, too, in order to interact with other humans, which happens sometimes, then you can kind of get into these cycles where you stayed up too late working on something, but then you also have to be up to look over the edits during the day, and then you have to interview someone during the day, and then it's time to write something else, and it's night again. <laughs> so often I will end up not sleeping enough during the week and then kind of crashing on a Friday or Saturday or something like that. So it's not the, the healthiest day-night sleep schedule, I would say, but yeah. it, it works. I can identify because I am the exact same way, and it's funny to look back at like my story file and just see like to know what percentage of those were written at three or four in the morning. Yeah, <laughs> it's like funny to to see that looking back, but that's uh, I don't know. Sometimes that's when you do your best work when there's uh, yeah. nobody else around to bother you. Yes. Mm-hmm. So speaking of writing uh, huge chunks of material, probably late at night, uh, you did have a book come out. Yeah. Uh, six months ago, about that, a little more than that, right? Yeah, um, May. Yeah, the, May. The only rule is it has to work. Do you want to give like the thirty-second explanation for those who aren't familiar, or would you like me to? Sure, I can do it. The All Sam right. Miller, my podcast partner and, and former colleague at BP, we essentially took over an independent league baseball team. Which, for those who don't know, it's a professional team, but it's not affiliated with a major league organization. So the players are paid, but it's not the minor leagues, as we traditionally say. So we went to Sonoma, California. We took over this team called the Sonoma Stompers, which is, you know, sort of like an A-ball level team talent-wise. And we kind of got to play GMs for a summer. So we would sign players and we'd also be in the dugout every day. And we tried to run it according to sort of sabermetric principles that we had always talked about from afar, but never gotten the chance to apply with a real life team. Mm-hmm. That was good. You've, uh, you've explained it before. I've had some practice. I think. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I, uh, I've seen you write about it and talk about it. I know you've done a million interviews, so I won't ask the same boring questions that you've already answered. <laughs> like how did this come about? But right. I am interested, uh, six months after the fact, uh, what did you learn from that experience? And I guess what was it like covering this baseball season after having had that experience last summer of being around ball players and in the dugout and around the team and getting to know them and seeing some of your things in practice, your ideas uh, in practice on the field? Um, how did that experience from last summer uh, impact the way you covered and followed and thought about baseball this past summer? Yeah, I really missed it. And I kind of enjoy it in retrospect more than I did in the moment, just because there wasn't much time to enjoy it. I was 
sort of running this team or co-running it, which was kind of a full-time job, you know, going to games almost every day and, and driving to them and then worrying about the team and trying to make the team better. That took up a ton of my day. And then I was still writing for Grantland full-time at that point and trying to do the BP podcast and all of that. So it was such a busy time that I couldn't really savor it. And so looking back on it, it was great. And I miss that kind of connection because I did sort of lose my baseball fandom for any one team at a certain point. It it wasn't something I intentionally lost, but it just kind of happens to, I think, most people, not all people, but most people who do it as a job. And so I was, you know, living and dying with every Sonoma Stompers pitch and play in a way that I hadn't with a baseball team for a decade or more. And so it was really great to be that invested in this team's success instead of just sort of looking at it clinically and unemotionally and analyzing it, but not really caring so much about the outcome one way or another. And so I don't know that it changed the way that I look at baseball all that much. If anything, it, you know, kind of deepened my affection for it. But you know, it, it gave me a greater appreciation definitely of how hard it is to run a baseball team just because of how much time it took us and all the hurdles we encountered and just all the simple stuff, you know, like we we tried to we set up a scouting network and we had people at every game kind of taping video and, and charting every pitch. And we thought that would just be simple. We thought, you know, week one, we will just have this finely tuned scouting operation and we'll be editing the video and we'll be showing the players there at bats after the game and showing them the next day's starting pitcher. And that stuff took us like weeks just to get to that basic level of competence, just because there were so many obstacles we encountered and time we spent talking to tech support and the camera battery is not big enough. So let's get a bigger battery and it's still not big enough. And now we need to get a a hundred foot power cord. So we have somewhere to plug it in and just all these little complications we hadn't actually anticipated, let alone the advanced analysis that we then tried to do once we acquired some data. So there is really a, a ton that goes into running a team and putting a team together. And of course, major league teams have hundreds of people doing that. And we did not, which is part of the reason why it was so challenging, but the whole experience just worked out as well as we could have expected. I think At the time, in the moment, I thought it was going terribly because we had pitched this sort of, you know, money ball. We're going to run a team and we're going to do all these unorthodox things. And then we encountered some pushback from the coaches and we weren't able to do everything we wanted to do in the first half of the season. And I thought we're just squandering this opportunity and this is not going to be the book that we pitched to the publishers. And in many ways, it wasn't, you know, it, it wasn't solely about numbers and stats and doing wacky things with your baseball team, although there's a lot of that in there. It became a sort of interpersonal story and almost a management book in a way that we had never anticipated. But we got really lucky, I think, just with the storylines that cropped up, with the players we had on the team, with the challenges we faced that were frustrating at the time, but made for really good drama and book material. So I think if we had done that experiment a hundred times, I, I don't think it would have worked out as well in more than a few of them. Mm-hmm. Are there anything, if you read... Uh anecdotes or quotes and things about clubhouse chemistry and sort of, you know, 
the importance of the the manager and and uh, you know in getting through to the players and uh, things like that that maybe a few years ago you might have rolled your eyes about, but after seeing this and being that close, maybe now you look at it and and say, oh yeah, I can identify with that. That's uh, that's what it was like for us and and those kinds of things about sort of the uh, you know the narrative and the the intangibles and and things that uh, you know lots of uh, you know, the, there's that kind of that divide of people who believe that's important, and the I think the stereotype of what many people think the all stats all the time. People are like, is that yeah. uh, have you changed your mind about uh, some of the things you see and hear about that after the experience? I don't know that I have after this experience. I think the the sabermetric community as a whole has definitely changed on this in the last I don't know 10, 15 years. If you go back and read early baseball prospectus, there was definitely a snarkier and more dismissive tone about that stuff than there is now. And I think partially that's the fact that a lot of those writers now work for baseball teams. And so they have, you know, seen it up close and the ones who are still writing know that those people who were writing alongside them are now in the front office or, you know, in the clubhouse or whatever it is. And so they know that that stuff is not being ignored anymore and teams are much smarter than they are. And and we've also found out that we've been wrong about some stuff, right? Some of the, the early sabermetric assumptions or the that reflexive desire to kind of say that everything that people in baseball believed was wrong or, you know, old coaches tales or whatever. A lot of the times the stats have backed up what people thought about baseball for years before the stats were able to answer those questions. So I think there has been a a greater willingness to accept that, well, if every player and every coach is saying that this matters, then it probably matters. Maybe it doesn't matter quite as much as they think it matters, but it's probably not totally insignificant. So I think my change, my thinking on that had already evolved before this experience. And one of the reasons we wanted to do it was to try to get some kind of data or try to quantify that clubhouse chemistry through this experience. And we tried, but I don't think we had a ton of success doing that. You know, we distributed surveys before every game to ask players what their mood was and how locked in they felt on the field. And we hoped at the end that this would re- just reveal all of these secrets of the baseball universe. And it didn't really like we had a hard time getting people to fill out the surveys for one thing. But it's it's tough. I mean, you could definitely being in the clubhouse every day sense that the mood varied depending on how well the team was doing you know people would be happier at certain times than others and little fights and squabbles would break out when the team was losing that probably wouldn't have happened when the team was winning but it was still really hard to pin down the direction of that relationship you know does winning come before chemistry or does chemistry come before winning and yes it's probably a bit of both and it's probably Somewhat significant, but also very hard to predict and plan for and implement. So I think I didn't really have my thinking changed all that much by this experience alone, but I had already kind of been swayed by by other stuff in the years leading up to it. I enjoy that part in the book about the surveys, and I now regret that I didn't ask you your mood and how locked in you felt at the very beginning. <laughs> that would have been a perfect way to start the podcast, but yeah. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> um, how about anything just about the process of writing a book? Is there anything that you took away from that that you might do differently if you decide to write another one? I think the book writing process went pretty well. Everything leading up to the book writing process was difficult and harder than we'd imagined, but once we actually started writing the book, we felt like, oh, well, this is the thing we know. We 
we know how to write. We don't know how to run a baseball team, but it was in some ways more complicated because I was co-writing it and in other ways less complicated. Obviously, I only had to write half a book, which made it a lot easier. At the same time, I had to be constantly coordinating with Sam because we had to make sure that, you know, something we were bringing up since we alternated chapters, we had to make sure they flowed from one to another. And I wasn't saying something that Sam had already said or assuming that Sam had already said something when he hadn't. And so there was a lot of back and forth and edits of each other's work and communication. And so that made it a little more difficult. But on the whole, I, I think we both sort of had the same vision for the book. And we clashed sometimes when it came to actually running the team. But when it came to running, writing the book, you know, we had been working together for a long time at BP and on the podcast. And so we were sort of, you know, no pun, but but on the same page when it came to that stuff. So I think that worked well. And we had tight deadlines, you know, like we had to turn the book in, I think, last December 15th, I want to say was the maybe the final deadline. You just hit the anniversary then. <laughs> yeah, I guess that's true. Yeah. And and our season ended on August 31st. And, you know, we were thinking like, we'll we'll write the book while we're doing the season and we'll have a nice head start. And by the time the season's over, we'll have the book almost done or something. You know, that was kind of our optimistic plan. And that didn't happen. We didn't write a word of the book during the season, which was partially because we had all these other things going on and partially because it was just sort of hard to see what the story was until it was over because the season changed directions so many times that we just couldn't say what it would be in advance. And so, you know, like we started the first week of September and basically had two months to write a book, which was hard, but we knew we had to do it. So that in a way, made it easier. We we knew it was just going to be a, a bad time and we were just going to have to buckle down and be done with it. And the fact that Grantland went under at that particular time, obviously, I was sorry to see that happen. But if it had to happen at some point, I'm glad it happened then because I had some free time to, to finish the book. And then there were a couple months where we were, you know, revising and going back and forth with our editor, which was sort of demoralizing, you know, like we, we turned in the, the final manuscript and sort of exhaled. And then we had like one day, I think, to enjoy being done with that before our editors started sending back edits on the first chapters we had submitted. And so it was then right back to the grindstone and having to, you know, shape the book into the thing it turned out to be. So it was a tough time, but the fact that it was such a quick process kind of helped us focus, I think. And, and, you know, Obvious, uh, often turnarounds in publishing are not that tight. So you'll write something or, you know, the experience will happen and then the book will come out two years later or something. And we had that option, I think, when we were initially talking about when it would come out. But we wanted it to come out like the following spring because we wanted it to be immediate in our minds. And so the fact that there wasn't like a year that we were just waiting around, I think, was helpful because everything was very fresh we were starting just after it had happened. And because we communicated via text and email throughout the entire process, that kind of almost gave us like a roadmap. Like we could just look back at our Gchat archives or text archives on a day by day basis and sort of see what we were doing or worrying about at that time or 
even put in excerpts from our conversations into the book. And so like when we would get stumped about what to write next, you know, we would just sort of drop a block quote in from an email exchange or something. And it was like, OK, well, we we got some words down, even though they were words we already said to one another. I liked how you styled it. There were pages where you actually put in text conversations and made it look like an iPhone where you see like the same yeah. familiar like text bubble shape and right, like yeah. the back and forth. And I thought that was uh, that was pretty good. Yeah, and, that was uh, cool. And I'm sure that is nice to just to just knock out a few hundred words that way. Yes, yes. <laughs> um, so yeah, so the last last topic uh, to get to is the podcast, Effectively Wild, which we've uh, which sort of keeps coming up, and that's the one you host with Sam, your co or your uh, co-author and uh, co-GM or whatever uh, title you guys had uh, with the Stompers. So this uh, it's interesting because I think a lot of podcasts, you know, they have co-workers together and then if somebody leaves they'll just bring in somebody new or it'll kind of end but this is this is the podcast that's sort of unkillable you guys have uh, both switched jobs multiple times and now neither of you are at bp and still it's hosted by bp so what uh i mean how does that work is that something that like when you decide to switch jobs you bring up in your uh with your you know potential new bosses and just say hey i'd like to keep this going how have you guys been able to manage to to keep that going and uh and you know he's now at espn and you're now at the ringer and people are fine with you guys doing that a few days a week for bp yeah i mean you know it's been unkillable to this point i think it certainly could be killed i mean it it could end at any time you know we are sort of subject to the whims of our employers to a certain extent and we've been lucky that we've been able to keep it going this long and we never expected that it would last this long and so yeah with me at least it has been something that's had to come up in my initial discussions or negotiations with a prospective employer you know when i went to grantland i mean i think there's an understandable impulse if you are hiring someone you want that person to do all their work for you and you want to get the the full fruits of their labors and you certainly don't want them to be doing something that could be a competitor to something else you're doing. And so I think it's a, a totally natural desire to say, well, you have to stop now. You know, I'm, I'm hiring you to get all your work so you can't still be working for someone else. And I've been lucky when I went to Grantland, I I think initially there was some resistance to that. You know, well, you'll you'll have to stop the podcast. And then I, I, I just kind of made it clear that it was important to me that I be able to keep doing it. And, and it helped at the time that Grantland already had a baseball podcast. Jonah Carey predated me at Grantland and he already did a baseball show. So they didn't need me to do a baseball show. And so, you know, I, I wanted to keep doing a baseball show. And since I couldn't do one there, I think they were more amenable to letting me continue to do one elsewhere. So that was part of it. Or, you know, when I went to The Ringer, I mean, again, especially because I was going to be doing a baseball podcast for The Ringer, I think, you know, understandably, there was some skepticism about whether I should continue to do a baseball podcast elsewhere. But, you know, by that point, people were paying us to do it. And it wasn't just purely for fun, although it was still fun. And so I could kind of make that case. It, it really helped that we had Patreon supporters who were supporting us to, you know, do this podcast. And I could say, well, I, you know, I, I can't come work with you and quit the podcast because then I would lose all this money. It would be taking a pay cut if I did that. And I'm not going to do that. So, you know, it kind of gave me some some leverage to do that. And and I think it does come back to there being a relationship between me and those editors because of Grantland. And they knew that I had already done it. 
you know, like every day when I was at Grantland and still managed to do whatever they wanted me to do. And so I think there was some level of trust there that, well, he can keep doing this and still do this other stuff for us. So that's kind of how it happened. And I'm surprised that it happened. And it's been great to be able to do this thing for going on five years now. You know, it's I, I still enjoy talking to Sam and and it's been great getting to know him. And obviously it's led to things aside from the podcast, like the book and this incredible community that has spawned around the podcast that I hope will outlive the podcast, you know, in some form or another, the Facebook group and the, the website banished to the pen, which was started by effectively wild listeners who some of whom have gone on to get jobs elsewhere because they wrote for that site. So that's been the most gratifying part of it is just these people who have made it part of their lives and made us part of their lives and have become part of our lives in the process. So it's been a much better experience than I ever could have anticipated when we started. And you're at uh, 990-some-odd episodes, so I know you <laughs> might not want to spoil it because uh, it might be a surprise. But I'll ask anyway, do you guys have your uh, any special plans for the big 1,000? We do have a plan. I don't know if it's special, um, <laughs> but it's it's a plan. It's, uh, you know, like we generally don't do anything crazy for the, the big round number milestones. I think, you know, 500, we talked to Jeff Sullivan and Grant Brisby, and we – did a draft of some of our favorite things about baseball, and it was a really fun episode. I think it's one of my favorite episodes, but it wasn't like some big blowout where we got some huge name guests. So I don't think 1,000 will be either, but hope, hope people like it. It won't be the Seinfeld finale parade of old <laughs> guests coming in. No, probably not, although that'd be a fun thing to do too. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks. I'm looking forward to that. And uh, this was a lot of fun. I've spent a lot of time hearing the sound of your voice. It was nice to have you actually come on and talk to me. I was worried a little bit that uh, my value over replacement podcaster would be <laughs> exposed as very negative uh, after hearing you on all your other podcasts. But thanks for uh, for taking some time. This was fun. Yeah, my pleasure. Fun talking to you. Sure. So you are on Twitter. People can follow you at Ben Lindbergh. They can mm -hmm. subscribe to your podcasts, Effectively Wild, Ringer MLB Show, Achievement Oriented. They can check out your book, The Only Rule Is It Has to Work. Uh, anything else that you would like to plug or say about any of those things? No, I think you, you got it all. You can find all my writing at TheRinger.com and you can find me on Twitter and I'll link to all the stuff I do. So that's a, a good way to keep up on all of it if you're so inclined. All right. Well, thanks a lot, Ben. I really appreciate it. Everyone out there, you can also follow me on Twitter at Mitch Goldich, M-I-T-C-H-G-O-L-D-I-C-H. You can subscribe to this podcast in iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or Google Play Music. And like I said at the top, you can check out old episodes with Jason Stark, Eric Malinowski. I have other guests like Jeff Perlman, whose new book is out, uh, Will Leach, Dan Hicks, before he went to Rio to call the uh, swimming for uh, NBC in primetime. If you enjoyed it, please do me a favor and leave a rating and a review, which helps other people find it. You can also like my Facebook page, Mitch Goldich Sports Writer, and visit my site, MitchGoldich.com, uh, where I post all my stuff that I write for SI and other podcasts that I do. And thanks again, Ben. I did it again where I wasn't sure if I should just cut you <laughs> off, uh, but I, I made you sit and listen before I said goodbye. But thanks again for your time, and uh, everyone else out there, I'll talk to you again soon.